0: Okay, we will be in Mark 2 this evening. I like to, sometimes I pray out loud, sometimes in a service I might skip a prayer list, sometimes uh, I might just read a part of it, pray silently, pray out loud, kind of, that way when one person says amen, everybody doesn't feel like they're obligated to get up or stop. When someone stops, and so a little bit more authentic, let's let you let you, you keep going until you're done praying. And uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter number two this morning. will or this evening. Sorry, we'll begin reading at verse one, and um, we will stop reading at verse twelve. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house, and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay." When Jesus saw their faith he said unto the sick of the palsy son thy sins be forgiven thee but there were certain scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts why doth this man why doth this man thus speak blasphemies who can forgive sins but God only and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves he said unto them why reason ye these things in your hearts whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he rose, and took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying... We never saw it on this fashion now, when I look at mark chapter number two, there are several there are several things and applications that can be that can be pulled out of out of mark two um, what we read the application uh the the contextual meaning of the scripture jesus essentially Jesus manifests himself that he is God before the people by not only forgiving sins, but proving that he can forgive sins by allowing one to essentially rise up that is unable to do that of himself. And that is the essential message in the beginning half of Mark chapter number 2. And then Levi's called, and uh, Jesus goes on to teach another parable. But there's a lot of... um, application that you can draw from this, but I kind of want to deal with like the context first and really kind of make the application second because I believe that there are things that we can take from Mark 2 and then make applications to ourselves. I know that I do. I examine myself in the light of God's Word and uh, uh, I examine myself and I find what I can improve on, things that I see in the Word of God that can uh, strengthen me as a believer and how I Uh, Strive to serve him in the days in which I live And there are several things in Mark 2 So I kind of wanted to deal with the context first Jesus is just basically conveying To the religious Pharisees that he's God He's able to not only Heal the sick of the palsy and say Arise, take up your bed, but he can also Forgive sins And that's what Jesus is saying here In the message that he can do these things Because he is God But there are I really don't necessarily want to focus too much on that, though that's the essential meaning here. But I believe that that going into Mark 2 in the first few verses is really what I'd like to highlight. If I had more time to do this, and like it was periodic, then we'd kind of travel through here, but there is a short amount of time. But there is uh, something that I'd like to kind of pull out from Mark 2. And make application dust to today. So in verse number one, you see, and again, he entered into Capernaum and after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. So we see here that the Lord is in a public setting. He's in a house. He's in a public area where where people are coming. They're assembling together. The, the, the Lord is there. His presence is there. His presence is known. Uh, and these people are coming and they know that the Lord's presence is there. It's not something that well we're wondering if 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 he's there or not or if is he here today he's not here today or you know one person says he's here and one person says he's not i mean these people knew that the lord was in the house there wasn't a there wasn't a confusion of whether or not jesus was there because you see in verse number 1 that it says that he was in the house and i really believe that it's very important that jesus be in the house uh and Jesus alone, no one else, no one else but Jesus. And because if Jesus is in the house, then sinners can can see the result. Okay, uh, I really want to emphasize that how it's and how much it's important for Jesus to be in the house, because with Jesus being in the house, then results can be produced. Okay, so if Jesus isn't in the house, then this sinner right here isn't going to receive anything. So it's very important. In verse number one, it says that he's in the house. we got to have Jesus in the house. And it's imperative that he's there. Now, other men are in the house, but but Jesus has to be in the house, okay? All right? So, in verse number one, you see that he's in the house. But in verse number two, he says, straight away, there were many to gather together in that there was no room to receive them. So there's not only Jesus is in the house, but... There's a multitude of people that are there, and they're all coming together for uh, a service. I mean, he's preaching the word of God to them. They're having a, they're, this is the church service that's going on right now. I mean, the Lord is there, they're in the house, he's preaching the word of God unto them, and people are, are coming into the service. And these people, though, I'm really interested in these people, and that is the four that bear the one the four that bear the one. And there were characteristics of these four people that were uh, very courageous, uh, and I believe the application can be made. But in verse 2 it says, there were many gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them and know not as much as about the door. But then he preached the word unto them. So not only is Jesus in the house, but... But the word is being preached, okay? So, and no one else is preaching the word but Jesus alone, okay? Uh, And so, there's two things. In verse 1, Jesus is there. And then in verse 2, the word is being preached. So, in this church service right here, you have two things. But with these two things that are combined, you have these four people, okay? Okay? And this isn't going to be too deep or profound and I but very practical, and, and I believe it will be very helpful. But these people knew that Jesus was in the house. And when I see the characteristics of these people and how they knew that Jesus was going to be there, and as a result of them knowing that Jesus was going to be there, they took action. It's hard to want to take action whenever you don't feel like Jesus is going to be there. If you don't feel like Jesus, if you don't know if Jesus is going to be there, it's really hard to take action and go out and grab people who are sick of the palsy and who are lame and who are I mean, these people took action. Why did they take action? Because Jesus was in the house and the word of God was being preached to them. And these people knew that. And so that's very imperative when we look at that, because these people take action because of that. And here they are, they know that Jesus is in the house. And if we're going to get people to Jesus, then we got to know that he's in the house as well. And there are two components with him being in the house. And with Jesus, there has to be an establishment of of truth because Jesus is truth. It says, For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So these people are bringing this man who is sick of the palsy to an environment where the truth can be presented to them because that's where Jesus is at. And in John 1.14 it says that. But also in John 14 verses 1 through 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And... So Jesus is saying that if it's, not, if it's not the way that I have, this is like 21st century vernacular, but if it's not, if it's not through me and the prescribed methods that, that I have determined and set forth, it's not going to work. Anything outside of, outside of me is an alternate way. It's not, it's not going to work. And that's what he said in John 14, 6. I mean, that's whenever they were troubled. But the truth is very, very important. It's very, very important. In First Timothy chapter number 3, he says that thou knowest how thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so these people were able to bring this person there because Jesus was there and they knew that it was the truth. When we look around, a lot of times... A lot of times you hear that often. I hear that often uh, about a true church and, uh, and, and what makes a true church and, and stuff like that. I, hear that. I hear that a lot from people. And, and I, find it, I find it odd that the people who use words like that are the ones that really don't like to assemble that often. But really when you begin to think about it and you look from the outside, though it may be a place that preaches the gospel, I, you never think about that. Well, maybe Jesus really isn't on the inside In Laodicea, in that church at Revelation chapter number 3, it said, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I highly doubt that Jesus is on the inside knocking at the door while people are coming in. I highly doubt that he's knocking on the inside while everybody else is coming in. And whenever I read that text in Revelation chapter number 3, it seems like Jesus is on the outside. And he's knocking on the door, and he's not in Laodicea. And we could get to a place like that where Jesus is on the outside. I mean, we're going through the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, and soon after Joshua, we'll probably get into Samuel, and the Ark of the Covenant was really, really trusted, but the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God for Israel. But what happened whenever the Ark of the Covenant, whenever they went down to the Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel got wiped out, the Ark got taken, and Ichabod was proclaimed... You know, a son was named Nicobod, I forgot who it was, maybe one of Eli's sons or whatever, but someone was named Nicobod, and so the glory of God had been departed. So what I'm saying is, is I'm, I'm just kind of laying the foundation that it's really important for Jesus to be here, and it's really important for the Word of God to be here, and these people knew that they had a place that they could bring this person to because the Word of God... Now, Jesus was there, and He could perform miracles and stuff like that, but the Word of God is preached here. In Romans chapter 1... Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, that is the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The, the inspired word of God is, is the power of God unto salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for a doctrine, for approve, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But the the it's inspired of God means essentially God breathed, and and I don't want to complicate it or add something that's not necessary for you to understand. But and it's not necessary. But all that means is that God breathed and inspired men to write what He told them. And it's very, very important because Jesus here is preaching the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter number 1 that the Word of God is that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And it's the gospel that God uses to penetrate the heart of the lost sinner, showing them their lost condition before Him. And God uses the gospel to illuminate the heart of the sinner, Penetrate them down on the inside and reveal to them who and what they really are. In Hebrews chapter number 4, the writer says, For the word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing thunder of the soul of spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And the word of God is what does that. And we see Jesus right here. Not only is he in the house, but he's preaching unto them he's he's preaching the words that god's telling him he's preaching the word of god and that's very very important that the word of god is, is is preached and jesus is here and here are these people because there's a there's a component here and and i'm going somewhere with this my my conversation tuesday will you'll understand here in a minute where i'm going and why i'm going there word of God is, is is very, very important. And in First Corinthians chapter number one, verse number 18, he says, For God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And the wisdom of words takes away from the cross of Christ. It 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 it, it sounds good when you when you interact with intellectual people. Uh, in society, whether it's doctors and religious doctors and, and masters and stuff like that, man, like like man, all that stuff sounds good, man. You can talk it and you know how they talk and I, I know how they talk. I know the words that they use. But all it is is it 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 just it takes away from the from the it takes away from the power from the gospel. Because it takes away from the simplicity in the gospel of that, that is in Christ. And then what that does is that shows the intellectual capabilities of man, when man's wisdom is 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 folly anyway. And right here in First Corinthians chapter one eighteen, Paul talks about that and preaching the word of God. So I kind of wanted to lay that groundwork because that's imperative for us today, and we have a responsibility. I mean, I, we we have a responsibility. I mean. And you understand the responsibility, the, you know, the more in the faith that you grow, that you grow up in, that, that you realize, I man, like, I, I do have a responsibility here. Like, like, I do have a responsibility for this. It says in Thessalonians that we were entrusted with the gospel. I mean, God put us in trust with, with the gospel to minister to lost souls with. We were entrusted with that. And I realize that more and more every day. So here, Jesus in verse 1, he's in the house. And then in verse 2... He's preaching the word of God unto them. So now, here they are in verse number 3. And they come, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born a four. Now, what is really interesting to me is how that these four people work together for the benefit of one person. They all seen the need for one person... They, they all seen the need together for this one person to get to Jesus. This this one person, the need and the necessity, the importance thereof of this person and and getting them to Jesus. And they saw that need, and then they took action upon that need. But they were focused on helping one sinner. There was a they were they were working together. For the goal of seeing one person come in contact with the Lord, really, and if one one person comes in contact with the Lord, then it's worth it all. And the Lord, the the Lord is the one who offers the solution. The Lord is the one who offers salvation. The Lord is the one who is able to offer uh, offer anything. the The power wasn't in these four people, but the power was in the Lord. But I really like how they focused on one and. What I have learned is that though there is the Great Commission, go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and that is true, that is a true statement. And we do preach the gospel to every creature. People we come in contact with, things like that. But I've, I've learned, I've, I've, I've come to find out that if you really just focus in on one person and just and just really go in on one person, it allows you to, to, allows you to minister to them, it allows you to help them, to pray for them, you're not distracted. I mean, not that you don't minister to other people collectively, but... You're really able to work together for one person and pray for that person and labor for that person, fast for them, give them money, help them build stuff, clean septic tanks, whatever it is and how you minister. You're able to focus on that one person. And they all did that. And see, what modern religion does is modern religion forgets the one and then goes after the 99. Because the 99, uh, the 99 are the ones that are the more contributors. Because really, when you look at the one as opposed to the 99, the 99, really, because it's like, that's where all the storehouses is. I mean, that's where the meat are. I mean, if I lose the 99 sheep, then I'm not going to have wool. I'm not going to have meat. We're not going to have lamb. You know what I'm saying? Fill in the blank, whatever the case may be. But modern religion goes after the 99. But we see that the Lord, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, puts specific emphasis on the one. And in Luke's gospel, chapter number 15, there is the parable of the sheep, the silver, and the sun. And it was one sheep, it was one piece of silver, and it was one sun. And all of that is in one parable, but giving three different examples. But he talks about how the shepherd goes after the sheep, and he says, he goes after the sheep, and... He says, likewise, I tell you, there shall be joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. So the emphasis in that parable in Luke 15, the Lord was putting the emphasis on the one. But religion goes after the ninety-nine, and really what I like about these people in Mark chapter number two is that they were able to to co-labor and focus on, on one person. Because they weren't divided in their effort and in their labor. There wasn't like, we'll see who I brought to church today and uh, they've been coming for a while and I got nine that fills up here and, you know, two people came today. I mean, there wasn't a, you know, like there wasn't a contest. I mean, I I see, I come in contact with people that have religious contests with TV screens and they've invited 20 to church today and uh, group, uh, group A over here invited 50 to church today and group B invited 35 in church today and where it becomes a competition, and, and that's how religion is in our day, and especially with the deception that's going on today, and there's a lot of deception, uh, especially in a Baptist church nowadays with deceiving people to make a decision for Christ apart from the Spirit of God. And, but they were all focused on one sinner and took action to get this one sinner in front of Jesus. Now, if you look in verse number 4, it says, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press they uncovered the roof where he was so they took action and that's what i really really find encouraging because i look for a place like like where i can serve here as a member of the body right like i look for a place like like how can i serve here right like how can i be in addition here like what what can i do as a part of the body and how can i be a benefit and an asset to the body and i and i think about that and i think about how I can interact, but I see these people and how they uncovered the roof and really uh, and and the process by which the roof was uncovered. I mean, it took labor how they had to take, and back in that day, it was made with wood and and sticks and brush and clay, and it's flattened down. It becomes kind of like a clay tile, and, and how they had to break that up, and it took effort, and it took effort for all those people to uncover the roof and i see myself and i see myself I, I can't lie i see myself in a chapter like this and and i'll be honest with you i don't know if i would have got on the roof like these people i don't know if i would have got on the roof like these people i mean I, really i'm afraid of heights i'll be honest with you i don't know if i would have got on the roof cuz i probably would have looked and be like man it's you know it's 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 busy like there's a lot of people in there like I, you know what i'm saying like it's too busy jesus is probably real busy like Maybe maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I shouldn't go. Maybe I shouldn't bring, you know what I'm saying? And so when I look at that, I examine myself, and I find the weaknesses within myself, but, but I find that I can depend upon the Lord because if I'll take the effort as a member of the body and just make an attempt to get on the roof and then work with the people that God has put me with, then I can uncover the roof with the people that God has put me with, and we can just uncover the roof together. Whereas instead, I think in my mind, like, man, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think in my mind, I got a long roof to uncover, but I forget that I got four people here that will help me uncover the roof together. You know what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? So when you begin to think about it in terms like that, that you're not, there are other people with, with other strengths to draw from, and I may not be able to hop on the roof uh, as fast as someone else can, but you know what? I can take a tile down. I can move. A, there's certain aspects, in these people... We're uncovering the roof, but if I could use it in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in an application sense, they uncovered that roof. But in our day, we have to uncover the roof of ungodliness. When we come in contact with people, when we come in contact with really, really ungodly people that we live in in our day, we have to uncover the roof of unbelief. Not only that, we have to uncover the roof of false doctrine. We have to put forth an effort and a labor to uncover that roof, especially if we're going to reach other people. I had some Mormons that reached out to me on Monday, and when I interact with Mormons, I like to interact with them, but I really wanted to check my motive, especially after Brother Danny's message, I wanted to check my motive, I didn't want to just embarrass them in front, you know what I mean, like I didn't want to go to, I didn't want to debate them or anything like that, I didn't want to like do anything like that, but I wanted to really check my motive and be like, man, you know what, maybe I can help these people, and this is the stuff I like to do anyways. I mean, I really love to take this out there. It's really enjoyable to take this out there. It's very enjoyable. Uh, I like it personally. Um, but these Mormons reach out to me, and they they want to talk to me about Jesus. And I'm familiar with how Mormons work. Usually they try to get you on a Zoom call. If they're a little bit weary of you, they try to get you on a Zoom call. and Because if you... Start going back and forth. They can just disconnect the Zoom call. And they said, "Well, we'd really like to have a conversation with you, but over Zoom call." I said, "No, I think we're going to have to meet in person. <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about Jesus, but we're going to have to meet in person." And they said, "Okay, well, y'all know how I look, you know what I'm saying." So I didn't go in there with a suit and a tie, and you know what I'm saying. I went in there with a short sleeve shirt, clothes all dirty, and these poor old Mormons had no clue. They had no idea. So I go in this room, and I, I go in Brahms, and I look like a wicked heathen. I have my Bible in my bag. I have my TR in my bag, too, because they talk about Bible translation and how the English Bible isn't whatever, translated correctly or whatever. So I brought my TR for backup. So just in case they tried to say this wasn't good enough, that I could just make reference to that, The English is perfect, but I do that as a fear tactic for them. So the TR is not needed, but it's not needed, but I do that as a fear tactic for them um so i go into brahms and we have this conversation and the elder the really good eloquent one is you know we begin talking and i play like a i play like a fool i mean i'm uncovering that roof i mean he's asking how my relationship with god is i'm like man god and i like brother glenn says god and i got a good thing going we're doing all right you know what i'm saying i ain't in hell so i guess god's all right you know i mean i'm using choice words i'm not you know i'm not lying i'm just not telling them everything He's like, "Well, don't you want to be saved?" And I'm like, "Well, I sure don't want to go to hell." You know, and uh so I'm I'm acting like a complete fool with these guys. Well, 15 minutes into the conversation, they start wanting to talk about the Bible. And they start handing me uh, the Book of Mormon and all that stuff and we talk about uncovering the roof of false doctrine. So, as we're sitting at the table, I stop acting like a fool. I mean, I start real I start kind of pinpointing and they start trying to talk to me about the Bible and God's purpose for my life, and I kind of I baited him into it and just kind of gave him, you know, I threw out that line and just let it kind of just go out for a little bit. Well, when it was getting too much and I knew that they were going to hurry up and pack up, I started to kind of reel it back in and kind of just pull a little bit and tug. And he started handing me the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and he said that I can't use the Bible, but I can use the Book of Mormon. And I was like, okay, well, I got an idea. I said, I'll just use my Bible. And of course, you know he was kind of apprehensive of that. He's kind of taken back. So I reach in my bag and I get my Bible, and then I set it down. And I'm we're sitting at this table, and then he start, he kind of starts getting scared. He start, you know what I'm saying. He starts going uh, uh, and and you know what I'm saying he's stuttering in his words and because he's scared that I have a Bible because I just you know I was kind of acting dumb. And then after that, we start having a conversation. And I start talking to him about salvation. And every time he would say that this is what salvation was. I would turn around and I would say, okay, well, if i got to be baptized, then what about the thief on the cross? What, what about him? Because uh, he was saved. He, 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 he got it. You know what I'm saying? And, but, but he wasn't baptized. And this poor, helpless Mormon is interacting with me, and I'm telling him, well, go ahead and turn your Bible or your book over to Second Nephi, and you go ahead and tell me what it says. Because it says, for by grace you're saved through faith, or whatever, not through faith, but it says by grace you're saved through the commandments, keeping the commandments and all that stuff. And then it says, after all, you've got to do all this stuff. And then it says, after comma, you're saved after all that you can do. And that's what 2 Nephi says. So uh, I'm telling this Mormon where he needs to go in order to tell me how to be saved. And I'm not supposed to know anything about what he believes or what a Baptist believes or anything. And then so we, we start talking about that. We talk about Ephesians. And I say, well, this says after all you can do, and this says it's by grace through faith. Which one is it? Long story short, after I'm dealing with these Mormons, I look both of them right in their face and I say, "You two are possessed with some demons, and you are deceiving millions of people and propagating a false doctrine gospel. And you will give an account to God on the day when you meet Him for all of the souls that you have deceived." And they were just shocked. You know, I wasn't being rude or uh, you know, ugly. You know what I mean? I wasn't being rude. I was just—I mean, I was just—we were in bronze. We were in a public place. So I was just real quiet, real somber, and just sticking my finger out here and just looking them right in their face and telling them that they're possessed with demons. And they need to repent or they will burn an eternal flame. Anyways, after all that, they left. I told them, you know, I'd love to take them out for dinner. I'd love to interact with them and I know they're not permitted to and I'd love to just hang out with him and not talk Bible, not, you know, just, just spend time with him, take him out to eat. Just, that's what I did with Bo. That's how I interacted with Bo. Bo and I didn't spar. I just I took him out to eat, boom, and just, you know, for the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, but he that wineth souls is wise. I know it's not about door knocking and soul winning, but just if I can use that in applications, being wise in how I deal with people. And so he says, okay, I'm, you know, I'd love to hang out and all that stuff. Long story short, pray for Elder Jensen, but I'm talking about how we have to uncover the roof of false doctrine. But here, and why that's important in our day, but here you have two things, two more things that I want to mention, and then after that I'll be done. There are two things that are in Mark chapter 2 in verses 4 and verses 5. And in verses 4, you have the responsibility of man and then in verses 5, you have the sovereignty of God. I found these two things. I'm studying these two things right now. This is what I'm studying. I'm studying the, excuse me, the responsibility of man, but I'm also studying the, uh, the, the sovereignty of God. Uh, I've been studying it for quite some time. And, but you see in verse number 4 that these people had a Responsibility. They didn't just look at this guy and go, well, you know, Jesus is almighty. He is God. And if he's going to get it, we don't have to do nothing because he'll get it anyways. But, But you see that responsibility because they take action. And we have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to take action just like these four people did because there are two aspects to that. And there is a responsibility. Jesus said, "Go ye in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature." I mean, if if it was only the sovereignty of God, then He wouldn't have said, "Go ye." He just said He would have said, "Every creature, baptizing them in the name," and and you know what He said in baptism. You understand what I'm saying? But there's an element of man's responsibility, and God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. Man has a responsibility to go and to give to do. But God is also still sovereign. It's like whenever Zacchaeus, Jesus passed him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste, for today I must abide at thy house. But what did he say? What did he tell Zacchaeus? He said, Zacchaeus, come, come down. You have to come down. So in, in application sense, sinners have to come down. I'm not talking about altar calls, but they have to make a move. So you cannot preach the, you cannot preach the responsibility of man. It's like the love of God and the wrath of God. You can't preach the wrath of God apart from God's love and you can't preach God's love apart from God's wrath. So there is a responsibility of man, but there also is a sovereignty of God. Man has a responsibility. I have a responsibility as a member of this body to interact with the community because I've got time to do so now. I have, a res- I have higher responsibilities that are not just taking care of just the the vain things that i like to do in my life i mean i have a higher responsibility and but right here these people took action they're 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 taking action they're uncovering they're laboring they're they're removing the tile they're not looking at the tile and going jesus is going to take action but by faith they're removing the tile and it our our labor plays a part in, in the lives of other people, because that's our part. Now, in the sovereignty of man's part, or in the, in the, in the responsibility of man, but in the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign. God, God is very sovereign, and you won't... It's, it's like dealing with a Pentecostal, man. It's like dealing with a Pentecostal, because some Baptists are so afraid to touch on the sovereignty of God, because they float all the way to the left field, But if you approach the sovereignty of God from the perspective of a Baptist, then you have no problem talking about God's sovereignty or the responsibility of man. Now, if you talk about God's sovereignty from the perspective of a Calvinist, that's a whole different sovereignty of God. It's not the same sovereignty of God. Just like when you're talking about the the responsibility of a man from the perspective of a Calvinist, it's not the same responsibility because they use... Uh, religious jargon to, to confuse the masses like monergistic and synergistic. I mean synergistic in the sense that uh, uh, it's, it's the sinner cooperates with God and the way that they frame the words makes it look like man's responsibility is not there. And I know that because I've read after them. And I have gone directly to, to the captain of their salvation. I'm not talking about the captain of our salvation. I have went to the captain of their salvation, and I know what they believe. And it's not a third-party thing where I just heard this from this person, I heard this from this person, and then over time, because I've been around it and so many people have talked about it, that I've built what I believe about that based upon what everybody else has said. I have went to the author of their salvation. And the way that they present the gospel is a distorted gospel. I've read it from the source. I've read it from their source. I didn't read it from an external source that follows them, but I read it from their source. And they have the free will of man messed up and the sovereignty of God messed up. For example, tulip. Let's just talk about tulip since we're already here. Let's talk about tulip. Tulip Tulip collapses in and of itself. Because there's a difference, there's a difference between let's just take Calvinists. So there's a different breed of Calvinists, but there's there's not only Calvinists in the Presbyterian sense, but there's a Calvinist in the in the sense of Reformed Baptist. And a Reformed Baptist is a Calvinistic Baptist that does not follow covenant theology. They don't believe in the succession of the covenant. Hence they're still Calvinists, but they don't believe in water baptism by way of infants. So they're still they're still Calvinist in belief. They just don't believe in covenant theology and that Old Testament circumcision replaced baptism. I don't have time to go into it, but I know what I'm talking about. And there's a difference there, but TULIP, the acronym TULIP collapses within itself. I've looked at it. I mean, I really did. I mean, if some of you knew what was on my shelf, you'd probably question me. I mean, you'd probably have real questions in your mind. Some of you might be like, hey, good. But what I'm saying is, is, is... I know what they believe. Tulip collapses in itself because total depravity is just like a Baptist, but when they get to the very, very end of it, they believe that man has to be regenerated before exercising faith and that before faith can be exercised in God, that man must be born again before that takes... That's what a Calvinist believes. A true Calvinist believes that man is born again before he exercises faith in Christ. And a few weeks ago, I laid that foundation of if that were the case... Then why are we not translated in the kingdom of his dear son and translated out of the kingdom of darkness before salvation? Because when you look, I mean, because I really try to look and I go, okay, if this is so, then what about this? And if this is so, then what about this? I look at it from all perspectives. You cannot be translated, the Colossians, what, chapter number one, translated from the kingdom of his dear son out of the kingdom of darkness. That cannot take place until the new birth. Well, Tulip builds upon itself. And when they say that man must be regenerated before exercising faith, they're saying that you are born again before you have faith in Jesus Christ, and that is that is false doctrine. Not only that, but let's go down the acronym: unconditional election. To about tulip, unconditional election. Election is conditional. Election is conditional. Even the Jews in the hundred forty-four thousand. The Jews and the 144,000, a prerequisite for that election is what? They're Israel. That's a condition. That's conditional election. There's not 144 Babylonian Gentiles, but it's 140. You guys, I mean, you're, you're part of Simeon. You're part of Levi. You're, that's conditional. There's no such thing as unconditional election because we follow the terms and the conditions of the gospel for salvation. Ephesians says, after ye believed... What does it say? After you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. So after we believe in Christ, then that's when we're sealed. So unconditional election, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When a Calvinist says, what must I do to be saved? They bypass the cross. So just like you and I, Romans chapter number 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Galatians 2.16, I am crucified with Christ. The, the, the Calvinist bypasses all of that. So they're, they're already dead to the world. That does, Calvary doesn't take place in their life because they've, they're already there. They bypass Calvary. You would, see, people who are born again, you have to go to Calvary. Just like Jesus went to Calvary, if, you, if you're born again, you have come to the place called Calvary. You went to Golgotha, and your old man was crucified with him that this body might be destroyed. That's why the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it makes you free from the law of sin and death because this body has been ruled dead judicially in the sight of God. That's, how, that's why unconditional election, just tulip falls apart, unconditional election falls apart. Okay? Now, limited atonement. Limited atonement falls apart. And Brother Bell actually helped me with this because the atonement, Christ made the atonement for everybody. The atonement, he died for our sins only, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. But in Romans chapter number what? Chapter number five, it says, but he helped me with this. And now my, my doctrine of, of the atonement is based upon whenever he was talking about that. He says, but now we have received the atonement. So that means the atonement was there all along. But it's just now it's been accredited and we receive that. So, and the Calvinist teaches that limited atonement is the fact that Christ died only for the elect and the atonement is specifically for that group of people. The atonement is lim- it's unlimited. Here, here's how it is if you want to... and he's, he's the overseer, so you t- if he'll tell me if I'm wrong and you know, he can just tell you if I'm wrong. The atonement is unlimited... To all who believe, but it is limited to those who have believed. Does that make sense? So it's there, and it's unlimited, but it's limited to those who have believed in the aspect of application sense. Okay, So that is L, limited atonement. I, Romans 3, we can go to that, Romans 3, where is it? Yeah, right. That's great. So then, what what I said wasn't just like a random shot. <laughs> right, right. And that's and that's right. In Christ, I'm glad. I, I knew that was right. I knew, but I, I think that's that verse that I based it off of. I, you know, man, I wasn't just shotgunning. But so unconditional election, limited atonement. The atonement's unlimited, and then perseverance of the saints. Paul, the Apostle Paul, said specifically that some made shipwreck of their faith, and they had faith, but it was made shipwreck. And he also said that John Mark is unprofit; he's not profitable now. I'm not taking him with us, Barnabas. But later on, Barnabas was looks like there, there looks like there was a time period that John Mark wasn't persevering. You know what I'm saying? There was a time period when John Mark. I mean, Paul did not want to take Mark. Barnabas obviously seen something in Mark that everybody else didn't see. And it makes sense because Barnabas dealt with Paul. But Paul didn't want to take didn't want to take Mark. So because obviously something had happened. So I, I mean, but perseverance of the saints teaches that people who are truly born again are really going to persevere and and that they're not going to fall away. Well, you can make shipwreck of your faith. I mean, you could literally decide to make shipwreck of your faith tonight. And you can do it without anybody ever knowing it. You can just hop on your phone and just start scrolling and respond to messages and look up stuff. And you can make shipwreck without anybody in here knowing it. And, but Perseverance of the Saints says that, that, that you'll, you'll always continue. You'll, you'll continue. And you'll never, I mean, there's examples of that. Let me go back to Irresistible Grace real quick. Who was it? Was it Felix? Who was it Felix? Was it Felix or Agrippa? One of the two. Maybe it was both of them. But he said, he said. one of them said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. One of them was trembling, and that's the Spirit of God, I believe, was dealing with him. And he said, go thy way, for I will call for thee for a more convenient season. So when I want to deal with it, and I'll respond to it, then I'll call you, Paul. And we know that we don't see where God ever deals with them. So that's the irresistible grace, so it is resistible. There are other examples that we can pull from that. But And then perseverance of the saints. And so, but, but... So understanding those things, but when I see this right here in Mark chapter number 2, I see I see two things. I see two things. I see man's responsibility in verse 4, and I see the sovereignty of God in verse 5. And these two complement one another. And you you have to be very wise in how you deal with those two things because if you deal with the sovereignty of God from the perspective of 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 a Calvinist then it's going to have a skewed there's going to be elements of truth in it but it's going to be skewed just like if I dealt with if I dealt with if I go out and I knock doors and I deal with people after just reading uh, Acts 16 I'll just knock on someone's door what do you want to do to be saved you just believe in Jesus Christ okay let me just pray with you and so if you look at it from the, from the, from the free will of man's total responsibility or uh, synergistic however they want to say it all the docs if they want to use it in a synergistic sense, then man, and you could use God saves people, and man, repent repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not synergistic. Synergistic means, or monogistic means that God saves the sinner apart from the sinner's cooperation. I mean, how ridiculous does that sound, that God saves somebody apart from them wanting to be saved? That's what, that's, what, that's what monergistic means. Monergistic means that God deals with somebody with the Spirit of God and saves them apart from their desire to be saved. I, that is literally what it means. And they use terminology like this to skew an interpretation and to make application. That's the same thing that the Mormons do. And when I dealt with those Mormons, I just started thinking about, I just started thinking about all this kind of stuff. So one more thing. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter number two. And then I'll be done for our little Bible study tonight. I started dealing with those Mormons, man, and it just started making my mind just go. Second Timothy chapter number two. Now, how do we how do we respond to how do we respond to this? If I could finish it up, how do how do we as believers uh, respond? Second Timothy chapter number two. Let's look at verse number twenty four. And the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. Right here. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive at his will. So we have to not strive, but be patient, and in meekness instructing those people. But, we just read a text where it says that God grants repentance. That's what it says, that, it's, that repentance might be granted the acknowledging of the truth. And so a person can profess faith, in Christ, profess faith in Christ and then repent, and then God not accept their repentance. And so there you have our responsibility again. Maybe i am crafting an entire several thoughts on these two subjects, maybe one day, just both of them just... But you have the responsibility of the man, how, how the servant of God must be must not strive, be apt to teach, all these things. And that's how we interact with people that we come in contact with in, in wisdom uh, is being wise as a serpent and then harmless as a dove. But then God does his part where he says that if God will grant them repentance to the acknowledging the truth. And so that's man's part and then that's God's part. And so I looked at Mark chapter number 2 and that was a blessing to me. I know it wasn't, you know... Uh, high level pumped up but uh it was a blessing to me so uh, it was a blessing to you um, let's pray and then uh, we'll be dismissed our father we thank